in my desire to make Isaiah as understandable as possible, I want to lead you through the last 17 books of the Old Testament and show you its place, its role, and his contemporaries that prophesied some of the same things in different ways and in shorter books of the Old Testament. Prophets of the Old Testament. We're starting a study of Isaiah, but to grasp Isaiah, we need to know his context and his contemporaries. We're told the four kings of his ministry, what is the first verse of Isaiah, but it tells us that he prophesied regarding Judah and Jerusalem under the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And so we learn the historical context. We're told about other prophets that prophesied at the same time for his contemporaries. For instance, Hosea prophesied with the very same kings, and it tells us so in the first verse. Micah prophesied with three of those four kings, overlooking Isaiah because Micah started a little bit later than Isaiah did. Prophets used similitudes. So we need the two helpers above. We need context of events going on in Israel, and we need the other prophets to help us so that we can understand the similitudes. Similitudes are metaphors or picture language that is, Isaiah ranges widely in his events. As the timeline I sent you yesterday in the preparatory email shows, there's 800 years from the beginning of Isaiah's ministry until the destruction of Jerusalem. There's a total of 800 years. And if you miss out on some of those, you're going to miss out on Isaiah because Isaiah spoke of events happening in all 800 years. We want more than sound bites from Isaiah, which is how most use the book, if they use it at all, outside of Isaiah 53. Most Christians don't know anything about Isaiah except Isaiah 53. It's got 66 chapters. It has 1,292 verses. There's a whole lot more in it than I, the 12 verses of Isaiah 53. I'll grant you that Isaiah 53 is an important chapter, but it's not all the book has to offer. I get tired of sound bites, and I hope that you're tired of them as well. For example, and I wrote you this recently, millions have used the words, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, for Jesus washing away sins. But the Spirit intended no such thing by those words in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. I, I learned those verses as a child and knew them by heart, but they're not about Jesus Christ, not about Calvary, they're not about those kind of sins, they're not about a legal redemption paid for by Jesus at all, because we're going to go by context and let it tell us what verses mean instead of somebody who wants a soundbite for some Sunday school lesson. And there's more. Brethren, you're going to be disappointed in some of the things that you have held and believed out of the book of Isaiah. You're going to be disappointed about a song that we sing in this church oh, that is so messed up when it comes to the Bible. That's just a hint. I'll say one word. Edom. So you've got to think now, but don't think too much. We've got to go to the next slide. So they read in the book and the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. This is Bible preaching. This verse, this verse from Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8 tells us what preaching is. We read in the book called the Bible, which is the law of God, and we read it distinctly because we want to focus on every single word. We give the sense of that reading and we cause you, the hearers, to understand the reading. That is expository preaching. And that is what ought to happen in the pulpit so that we don't end up with sound bites like this one. Sound bites like back here. We want the sense of God's Word. The New Testament counterpart for that, or cross-reference, is 2 Timothy 2.15, study. That's what I've tried to do because I want to help you with the book of Isaiah. To show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. I don't want to be ashamed of what I teach you. And that is rightly dividing the word of truth so that when it's talking about making something that is black, white, or red, white, we want a passage that's talking about Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary, not a passage that is unrelated to it altogether. We want to rightly divide the word of truth. Right. The prophets of the Old Testament. The last 17 books 
of your Bibles, your Old Testaments, are called the prophets. They start with Isaiah, they end with Malachi. They come after the five books of what we call poetry. They confuse and intimidate most Christians due to most Christians being ignorant of those 17. And I think we fall in that category. So that's why I'm taking today, this morning's sermon, to help us with those 17 books. They're confusing. I don't know what they mean. I don't even know how to read them. Uh, And they intimidate me. So I've just basically ignored them in my Bible reading over the years. Or if I read them, I just skim through them quickly because I don't appreciate their value. Do you know them by name? The first thing we ought to start with is learning the books of the Bible in order. Do you know the books of the Bible in order? Good. I like the answer. Do you know the books of the Bible in order? Can you start with Isaiah and get to Malachi in order rather comfortably so that you know those 17 books? We ought to know. This is our divine library. If we go into the divine library by opening up the Bible, we should know the 66 books that are there and what's on the shelf and what we want to pull off today for our reading. Do your children know those 17 books? Those 17 books are 26% of the whole Bible. If we measure them by books, 21% of the whole Bible if we measure them by chapters. It's a, great, it's a big portion of the Bible. Lord, help us to learn your whole Bible. Every word of God is pure. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. 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 Do these two verses apply about every word of God to the last 17 books of the Old Testament? A quarter of the Bible. Are we going to let that apply to that we need those 17 books in order to live. A prophet is a divine messenger. It's not just someone foretelling the future. That is an error about the name of the word prophet and about the verb prophesy and about the noun prophecy, that it's always foretelling the future. That is not true in the Bible. It's usually revealing God. And so a prophet is a divine messenger. He's a revealer of God and God's will for man. He's called the man of God. He's a warning watchman. I've put you as a warning watchman on a tower. God told his prophets. And he's a barking watchdog. And I didn't give you a picture because it's a Sunday. If it was Wednesday, I'd have a picture of a barking dog. And it wouldn't be a poodle. But all these different expressions are used in the Bible for the ministry of a prophet. These men, these prophets, warned repeatedly of God's judgment. God is fair and merciful with His children. He is so long-suffering and so patient with His children that He sent warnings over and over again to His people by the ministry of the prophets. But Israel rarely listened. They rejected the messenger. They rejected the message. They did not want to be told what to do by the prophets. So God, justly, always justly, always righteously, afflicted them, punished them, chased them, chastened them with horrible pain. Terrible atrocities were committed against Israel. And he would hiss to the nations. He would set up an ensign and call all the nations together, gathering them together and empowering them to destroy Israel, to destroy Judah with their armies, to take their women, to take their children, because they had not listened to the voice of the prophets that God had sent them. Eventually, God gave them up as captive slaves into foreign lands. And you should know these facts without any question in your mind about Shalmaneser and the Assyrian Empire coming up against Israel, the ten tribes, besieging Samaria, and after three years taking it and scattering their inhabitants throughout their empire and bringing Gentiles in and replacing them in the homes that were in Samaria and Israel. You should know that Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire came and took the two tribes, Judah, captive into Babylon. Eventually, God gave them up as captive slaves. He brought back Jews from Babylon. He didn't bring them back for them. He brought back Jews from Babylon for His name, for His Son's sake, and for you. 
because he had to keep his nation going. And that is something to always remember. He had made promises that there would be a son of his from that nation that would sit on the throne of that kingdom and he was going to keep it. So even though they went into captivity for 70 years, God brought them back from Babylon, not for those little people. Yes, they received the blessing of it, but he did it for himself and for his glory, lest those kingdoms would blaspheme him by saying that he was not able to fulfill his promises through his people. And it was for his son, because his son had a particular line to come through, and it was through the line of Judah. And it was for you, because it was through the line of Judah that we get the Lord Jesus Christ, and eventually God took away his vineyard from Judah and from the Jews and gave it to us Gentiles, as was already mentioned this morning. And as Malachi, Matthew chapter 21 explains to us very carefully. These men wrote books for your profit. What a blessing to have God raise up men to write books for us. God sent these special men, and they were special men, with special messages to His church of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. You should learn them. You should want to learn these books. Listen right now. It's only going to be a few minutes. I want to show you the 17 books. I want you to be a little more familiar with them than you were an hour ago. And then you should love them. Can we learn them? And then can we love them? Because we want to love God's Word. And loving God's Word is a choice to be like David. You can be ho-hum about God's Word, and that's a choice like Saul. Every man makes a choice in his life. Am I like David or am I like Saul? Every woman makes a choice. Am I like David or am I like Saul? Saul didn't really care about God's Word. He had it. He appreciated it. He knew there was a thing called the Ark of the Covenant, but he didn't do anything about it or God's Word or God's prophets he did not submit and love those things like David did. David just flat out loved them. David loved the Ark of the Covenant. As soon as he took office, he wants to move the Ark of the Covenant and put it in a better place than someone's garage. He, he loves the Word of God. He wants to write songs about it. He writes psalms about it. He invents musical instruments to praise this God. He was so different from Saul. And it's a choice in the heart to be like David or to be like Saul. And by the grace of God, I want a church of David's. And for the Lord to weed out all the souls and get them out of our midst. We don't need them. We don't want them. He doesn't need them. He doesn't want them. And they're not all that difficult to spot. Who loves the Word of God? Who loves the worship of God? Who shows it by their actions? That's a David. Lord, help us to be Davids. Let's learn your word and love your word. These prophets were not politically correct. If you read the minor prophets, they did not... Uh, satisfy what would be considered political correct language today. They were wild men, and they had wild messages, because if you're trying to get someone's attention just before they get killed, how gentle would you be in your speech? How aggressive would you be? Would you, would you use some wild demonstrations to get their attention, lest they drive off a cliff? And so these prophets did. They blasted sin like no others. These 17 books of the Bible at the end of your Old Testament. They have some of the Bible's most dramatic, graphic language. Without being crass or crude, there are things in Ezekiel that most Christians don't know are there. They may have read the book of Ezekiel, but they don't pick up on what is there. The sermon content for some of Ezekiel's sermons is so sexually graphic that it would shock you if you were told what is there and shown it and then had it explained to you. Because God reasoned from the beginning, and he used this comparison over 50 times in the whole Bible, that the best way to explain to one of his followers how much he hated idolatry was to call it spiritual adultery. Because then a man can get what it would be like to come home and find his wife with another man. And so that, it's called whoredom in the Bible. It's called spiritual adultery. It's called, uh, they played the harlot. They played the whore under every green tree. All that idolatry to get men's attention was called spiritual adultery. And he gets very, very graphic about it. And, and, and just, you can just mark it on your calendar that I'm, I'm just being a gentle pastor today. I'm just like Joel today at this moment. 
by not telling you some of those passages. But they got the message because right. he would just, he would, the Lord and his prophets would present it in the most graphic terms so that you would just cringe in your hatred of adultery and the violation that adultery is. But then he would apply that to that's how you've treated me. I've been your God. I've been your husband. And you're out there with these idols of stone? It was just beautiful. And so I'm, I'm saying all that and taking a couple of minutes there so that you'll appreciate the message of these prophets. Right. Their praise of God. And Brother Jim, thank you very much. You didn't know this line was on here. Their praise of God are second to none. And see, Jim just wanted to tell you, does this sound like a psalm? It sounds like a psalm. We think of David in the Psalms as praising God more aggressively and eloquently than anywhere else. But Isaiah 12 ain't bad, is it? Isaiah 12 is not bad. And so that's what this line is for. And their promises of good are second to none. They can exceed David in their promises of good of what the Lord's going to do for us Gentiles. Okay, here we go. The Jews that God commissioned to keep our Old Testament for us. God did not commission King James to keep our Old Testament for us. King James didn't keep the Old Testament for us. The Jews did. And they broke the, they broke the prophets into a couple different categories. They broke them into more categories than I'm going to show you, and more categories that came through in our English Bible. But we first of all have major prophets, and then we have minor prophets, and I'm going to show you that distinction internal to the prophets. And if you don't like the distinction, then you should throw away your Bible. Because your Bible has the distinction. Right. Why do Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel start off the prophets, and then it goes to Hosea, which was up there with Isaiah, and it strings it all the way down to Malachi, when all the way down through Zephaniah prophesied long before Daniel? Would you tell me that? I need your explanation, since you're so wise to dislike major and minor. Tell me. Why do all the minor prophets all the way down through Zephaniah, prophesy long before Daniel, but get listed after him. Because they are listed by size. And that is all we mean by major and minor. The major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And you can say to me, well, Lamentations ain't very big. It's only got five chapters. Why is it a major prophet? Who wrote Lamentations? Jeremiah did. So it tags along with Jeremiah, which has its own 52 chapters. Well, what about Daniel? It's only got 12. Well, they deemed those 12 better, bigger, more important, and stuck them there with the majors. And so those are the five that come first in your English Bible, your King James Bible. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Maybe we can learn all 17 right now. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel are the major prophets in size. Isaiah's got 66 chapters, Jeremiah's 52, Ezekiel's 48. Isaiah's bigger than all the minors put together. Yep. And two of those minors have 14. But Isaiah's huge. It's got 66 chapters. Okay, here we go with the minor prophets. Now these names, I know they're very familiar to you, and you've probably written several people this past week mentioning a few of these. I speak as a fool. Hosea. Joel. Joel, your name's in the Bible. Joel's a great name. Here I go again. I can't stop it. It's only four letters. But what does it mean? Jehovah is my God. J-O for Jehovah, E-L for Elohim. Jehovah is my God. It's a great name in four letters. Amos, Obadiah, smallest book of the Old Testament, 21 verses only, so simple, a blast against Edom, so simple, Obadiah, servant of the Lord, look at the ayah at the end of his name, remember Isaiah, ayah, servant of the Lord, it doesn't matter that he only wrote one little tiny book, how when was the last time you read Obadiah with joy? It can be, it's, it's a 21 verse blast against the great enemy of Israel, we have enemies, we have enemies like the Roman Catholic Church. We have enemies like the devil, but the Lord is going to win the victory against all our enemies. Right. And so there are, there are books like Obadiah that are not addressed to Israel. They're not addressed to Judah. They're addressed against Edom. Then there's Jonah. 
Jonah didn't address his message to Israel. Jonah didn't address his message to Judah. Who did Jonah address his message against? Nineveh. Okay, what does that word mean? What is Nineveh? It's the capital of Assyria. Assyria is the great enemy of Israel and Judah for several hundred years. And the capital city was Nineveh. And Jonah's ministry was to that city. Micah, Nahum, Nahum, a blast against Nineveh. Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. There we go, children. One of the first things you should do is learn the 66 books of the Bible in order so that you know these 17 books in order. Major versus minor does not mean anything about value of a book, but rather the size of the books. God chose Jewish scribes to help us keep that distinction, and we still have it in our Bibles. The books are in time order. Watch this. In time order within the two categories. Also distinguishing them, and that helps us understand these two categories have value. And so we understand that in, within the major prophets, it's going to be Isaiah wrote first, Isaiah prophesied first, considerably in advance of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was in front of Ezekiel because Jeremiah was in Jerusalem before it was taken. Ezekiel wrote while he was in Babylon already. Daniel was in Babylon already. And so there's an order there in time. But as soon as we go to the sixth book, Hosea, we find out that it jumps all the way back up to King Isaiah long before Assyria even took Israel captive, long before Nebuchadnezzar. And so by reading the first verse, which is all I wanted you to do last night, by reading the first verse, you know something happened at Hosea 1.1. The classification changed from big to small, from major to minor. That's all I want to say on that. It's just helpful. And I'm, I just gave you a tip on figuring out these prophets. Because once you get to Hosea, then it backs you all the way up to Isaiah as far as the timeline is concerned. And that is why I have made you this timeline for you to see Isaiah being a contemporary with Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah before Jeremiah ever comes around. That's why Isaiah is a contemporary of Hosea. Hosea is a contemporary of Isaiah. They were prophesying at the same time under the same four kings, the difference being Hosea was going to Israel. Isaiah was going to Judah. And, you know, it, some of the things that I say, if, the, you, if you think them a little simplistic, it's for your children. It's for your grandchildren. What is the capital of Israel? Samaria. What's the capital of Judah? Jerusalem. And you just want to keep those words connected to each other because you're going to run into them so many times in these 17 prophets. When it says Samaria, it's talking about the capital city of Israel. Okay, what's the nickname for Israel? The 10 tribes of Israel, what's the nickname for them in the Bible? Ephraim is a nickname for Israel, the, the 10 tribes. The time of each prophet shows that most, nine, of the minor prophets were well before Daniel, though they are positioned after Daniel. And I've already said that once, and I hope you understand it. The Holy Spirit used a, a classification of the prophets called the former prophets and the latter prophets, the former prophets, and it's something Zechariah used in Zechariah. He used it three times to refer to the prophets that were before the fall of Jerusalem because Zechariah was a latter prophet. He came after the fall of Jerusalem. So those prophets like Jeremiah that were before the fall of Jerusalem were called the former prophets. And uh, I'm not going to chase this, though I enjoy this right here. If you go to Matthew 27.9, you've got a Bible problem if you can't read Matthew 27.9 carefully and then figure out how to use the former prophets that Zechariah referred to because they include Jeremiah. Nope. You can do it yourself. I enjoy little Bible difficulties like Matthew 27, 9, but it is easily resolved, and Zechariah helps us, helps us with the distinction of former prophets, latter prophets. The main tool of this study for you right now is a timeline. 
a timeline that I sent you last night. I sent it early. Very hard for me to do. But I wanted you to at least be familiar with it before we got here today. And some of you got very familiar with it. Belhana is very familiar with it. The main tool of this study is a timeline to reconcile kings. I want you to understand who's reigning at what time and events, not, not only of Judah, but also of Israel, and kings and events of their enemies within the 16 prophets. Now, why did I use the word 16? Because I'm trying to make you think. There were 16 prophets, but they wrote 17 books. Who wrote two books? We've been over it once already. Jeremiah wrote two books. He wrote Jeremiah, and he wrote the book of Lamentations. You, have, you were given a corrected timeline of the Old Testament prophets. What, what does corrected mean? It's corrected for the 82 years of error instituted by Ptolemy, the pagan Egyptian astrologist, astronomer, chronologist, that everybody has followed since him except a few men that fear God and love the Bible. This is one of our Red Sea crossings, if you understand my terminology. There are men that can't figure out truth because they love men more than they love God. They love the praise of men and the approval of men more than the praise and approval of God. They will not risk themselves on the Bible alone. They have to have men back them up. Because to go against Ptolemy is to go against everyone. But there are some Bible believers in the history of the world, and I thank God for each one of them. I don't care if Philip Morrow was a Presbyterian or not when it comes to this issue. He loved the words of the King James Bible, and he defended every one of them, and he did not care what everyone else believed. And that man was a practicing attorney that, that dealt with cases before the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Philip Morrow. He is one. His, and so we're going to use Philip Morrow. I always have used Philip Morrow. I thank God for Philip Morrow. Amen. He's fantastic. The amount of work he put in to his Bible chronology, and we have a simple little book that he wrote on the back shelf that was purchased for you to take home and enjoy. Martin Anstey was slightly before him, and Martin Anstey provoked and convicted Philip Morrow to change from being a dispensationalist to being one of us when it comes to Bible prophecy. Amen. And Martin Anstey did all the, the lion's share of work. We have Martin Anstey's chronology on our website, and we have Martin Anstey's chronology in several of our libraries because every copy of that book that I find in Abe books or Amazon books, I buy if it's a reasonable price because I want it in our church because the effort put into that book is so fabulous. Right. And it's one of our privileged Bible study tools to have Martin Anstey's chronology of the Old Testament. Every single dated event, all tied together, brought together, put together in tables. It's just precious. I didn't bring it today because I've brought it in the past, and very few of you look at it, which tells me about your level of concern. So I left it at home. But anybody that ever wants to look at it, I'll be happy to loan it to you. These two men corrected the erroneous timeline that is in all study Bibles by 82 years, at least. Because Ptolemy estimated the Persian Empire to be 205 years long when it was only 123 years long. And we can figure that out pretty easily by just going to Daniel chapter 11 and seeing that there were only a few kings in the Persian Empire. It was a short empire. Anyway, all that was to say, when you see the words B.C., and they're not from Morrow or from Anstey. They're wrong. Yep. They trusted the Bible over outside sources like pagan Ptolemy. These two men trusted the Bible. If you ever hear in Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks prophecy that it started with Artaxerxes, you have met a Bible rejector. Right. That's what I'm talking about. It's incredibly serious to me. Daniel chapter 9, on several levels, is the most important prophecy in the Old Testament. What prophecy in the Old Testament ties the Old Testament to the New Testament right down to the year and dates events about the rebuilding of the temple, the arrival of Messiah, the death of Messiah, and what's going to happen after Messiah? 
There's no prophecy. It's fabulous. Daniel chapter 9, the last four verses. And we've been over it many times, and I'm sorry for taking so long right now, but I want you to know the timeline that you're going to look at in just a second is based on the work of these two men, which is based on the Bible alone, and we can't stand this guy. There's men that have given their lives to prove that he didn't know what he was talking about. He was a speculator. Do you know how long he lived after the Persian Empire? Only six centuries. And he didn't have Wi-Fi or very much of anything at all. They made the Bible fit the Bible, and that's what I love about them. That's called believing Bible study. Sherry knows I was out of my mind. I can get out of my mind very easily with love for God's words in the last few days, just thinking about this again. And a man named Edward F. Hills. I want to I name names. Right. Edward Hills, he's a Bible believer. Amen. God has saved us from those that don't really believe the Bible. Edward F. Hills believed the Bible. Philip Morrow believed the Bible. Martin Anstey believed the Bible. When it came to issues like this in chronology, you know, God makes a choice. He can show a man truth in a particular area and leave him blind in, say, the area of baptism. And I, these men are great. Edward F. Hills wrote a book called Believing Bible Study. Yep. Believing Bible Study is we trust God and give Him the benefit of the doubt, and what we think is a contradiction is our fault in understanding it. Amen. It's just a beautiful way to look at the Bible. They put Cyrus where God put him. Cyrus is one of my favorite people in the Bible, and there's no evidence that he's even in heaven. But God used this man abundantly. He was a great man. God named him 150 years before he was born, and we're going to keep him where God put him. We're not going to relegate him to some back closet so that we can exalt Artaxerxes because we have chosen to bow and do obeisance to Ptolemy, the Egyptian pagan. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, but every young man in here ought to be wondering, I'm not sure of everything he's saying, but I'm going to ask him afterwards because I want you to know these things. Study Bible dates that you have in your study Bibles. I hate study Bibles because I don't like putting the words of man on the same page with the words of God. Right. right now, trying to help you with some tool that's like a study Bible, I have the 10 Bible handbooks that are now published, 10 of them, at home, in my office, trying to sort through them. Is there one that I can justify as being a good Bible handbook to give you? And if I had them out here right now and you saw the thick and weighty ones, I mean, you saw the five-pounders versus my little five-gram one. I found a little one that is my favorite so far. And you'll like, it's little. The big, one, the big ones are enormous. They're like encyclopedias of the Bible. And I just want you to have a handbook that you can open up to Zephaniah to remind yourself in one paragraph what's Zephaniah about. But in, your, in those study Bibles, when it has a date at the top of the page, those dates are all wrong. Those dates aren't Bible dates. Those dates are Bishop Usher dates from England who took his dates from Ptolemy the Egyptian. Ptolemy's era of 82 years has been incorporated into all other Bible chronologies, forcing the rejection of Cyrus as God's man. I love Cyrus. You should love Cyrus. Why do I mention Cyrus? Why am I off track? I'm not off track. What's going to happen to us when we get to Isaiah 44 and 45? Because Cyrus is going to be named. And we're going to make him as big as God wanted him to be. Well, let's start making him big right now. They corrupt Daniel 9, 24 through 27, which on some levels is the greatest prophecy of the Old Testament. What other prophecy ties the chronology of the Old Testament to the New? Chronology. I'm not talking about guesswork, speculative stuff, or ideas of what's going to happen in the future. I mean a timeline that gives us a timeline, timeline that ties the Old to the New. Those last four verses of Daniel 9 are precious. Right. Those men... Study Bibles, C.I. Schofield, dispensationalists, men that we came from, they corrupt Daniel 9, 24, 27 by tying it to Artaxerxes. And so they have the wrong starting point for the 70 weeks. And they neglect the value of Cyrus over there in Isaiah. Here we go. Daniel 9, 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. That's 69 weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. You know the troublous times, the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, where they were having difficulty getting Jerusalem rebuilt and the temple rebuilt. And you've got two books in the Bible telling you about those troublous times. But what I want you to notice is that there is a commandment. There is a commandment that goes forth 
to restore and to build Jerusalem. Not the temple. It says Jerusalem. Unto Messiah the Prince. 69 times 7 is 483 years from some commandment going forth until Messiah the Prince. When was Jesus admitted to the nation as the Messiah? At his baptism. When the Holy Spirit descended upon him, John the Baptist identified him, and from that moment forward, he went as the Messiah. So we've got 483 years. This verse is incredibly important. It's absolutely beautiful. We have been through the four verses. They are 24, 25, 26, and 27. They're wonderful. We need to find the commandment. Well, Isaiah 44, 28, in the book that we're going to study. So maybe this does have some purpose in me being on a rant. This morning, here's the purpose. Isaiah 44, that saith of Cyrus. Now, Cyrus still is not going to be born for 150 years when Isaiah wrote this. That saith of Cyrus, regarding what God thinks of him, he is my shepherd. See, when God says a man is his shepherd, I get excited about that man. And I'm going to offend that man. And I'm going to resent all others for this particular event. He is my shepherd. I just love these words. I want you to love them. He shall perform all my pleasure. Well, what's God's pleasure? To have Jerusalem rebuilt. Even saying he's not going to build it, he's just going to say it needs to be built. And saying to Jerusalem, oh, there it is, there's that city, thou shalt be built. There's the commandment that goes forth from Cyrus the Persian for Jerusalem to be built. And to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. Because both went together, but what had to happen first? Temple or city? Did you have to have a place to live or a place to worship first? They had to have a place to live. That's Isaiah 44. And here's how the Bible tells us. Look at this is 2 Chronicles. Remember, I told you to read 2 Chronicles, and I told you to read 2 Kings if you want to understand Isaiah. Here's 2 Chronicles. Now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken with the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the 70 years ending, the 70 weeks starting, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation. He made a proclamation. A commandment went forth throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, these words, this is God dealing in the greatest kings in the history of the world. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me. Who had he likely met with? Daniel. What did Daniel do with Cyrus? Said, let's have a little Bible study. From Isaiah 44 and 45. It would be dated by the Jewish scribes as having been written 150 years earlier. And it mentions Cyrus the Persian by name. He hath charged me to build him an house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord is God be with him, and let him go up. Amen. That's 2 Chronicles. I love the Bible's law of emphasis. So let's read it again. This time from Ezra. See if it sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth and hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem. That's in the Bible twice. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 44. Now think about that. We've got Isaiah coming way after 2 Chronicles. Isaiah 44 is saying he's going to do it 150 years before he does. 2 Chronicles and Ezra tells us the fulfillment of it. But in the Bible, because the books of the Bible are by class or type of book, it's before. We reject with disdain. And I'm being polite. You have no idea. Few of you have any idea of how much I mean this. 
we reject with disdain any starting date other than Cyrus, any 483 event but his baptism, any mid-70th event but Calvary, and any male subject in that passage but Jesus Christ. Right. You know the dispensationalists have turned those last four verses into a prophecy of Antichrist. They have taken Jesus and made him the Antichrist because they have a 2,000-year gap between week 69 and week 70, which is absolutely impossible on every level for every reason. You can never have a timeline with an undetermined 2,000-year gap in the middle of it. It is all easily reconciled and taught by just knowing the New Testament scriptures, that Jesus came in the fullness of time, fulfilled all the promises, and in the midst of the 70th week was crucified, but not for his own sins. We thank God for tying this all together. Do you remember this? You better, I hope you can remember it. Remember this? I hope you can remember it. We went over the 70 weeks in detail. Timeline, just explaining it all to you. I hope you can remember. There's the 70th week. There's the, 70 week, the seven weeks. 49 years of troublous times to get that city built. Then the 62 weeks, which brings us to his baptism. There's his birth. There's Jesus being cut off in the midst of the week. Three and a half, his ministry was three and a half years long. We thank God also for a verse like this. That, look at this verse. is going to tie the chronology of Judah's kings and prophets to the chronology of the kings of Babylon. If, if you're a chronologist, you want tied your chronology with the chronologies of kings outside what you're dealing with. There's men, these men have spent their lives doing this, right. and they tell you what the key verses are in the Bible, and here's one of them. Look at this. The, Jeremiah 25. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. So we have the king identified exactly in what year that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So that ties two chronologies together so that you have a point where you have to have agreement. Anyway, just beautiful. I hope you can remember these places. This little map that I sent you a week ago, you know, what's important here is that you understand that Jerusalem is the capital of Judah and that Samaria here is the capital of Israel and that we've got Damascus up here because you're going to run into the name Damascus as the capital of, of Syria. And above them, you have Assyria, and the capital is Nineveh. Let's skip it. Let's skip it. I mean, it's, it's, it's helpful. We could stand and talk here for a few minutes, but let's get to the timeline. Okay, I need four ushers at least to pass out these to every person that's in here. And make sure you get the ladies in the, in the baby's room and anyone that might be in the cafeteria. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. This is the same that you were given last night with the preparatory email. And I've just put it up here so that I can draw a little bit on it maybe and highlight some things and point out what you ought to be looking at while I'm talking to you. When we say Bible date on this timeline, we have corrected BC dates that Martin Anstey and Philip Morrow have already done by getting rid of Ptolemy's error and by making the Bible fit. So when it says Bible date, that is a corrected B.C. date. That is a B.C. date you can trust. Now, some of you that are mathematically oriented and critical and haven't ever looked at Anstey or Morrow, you might want to say to me, I, I, I looked for the 70 years, and if I go by the timeline, there's only 69. Why didn't you make it easier for me? Because that'd be too easy. I didn't make it up. You've got to remember several things. There are inclusive dates where you include both the start point and the end point. That can change it by zero, one, or two, depending on whether you do that. Then there's exclusive dating, which means you don't consider the starting year or the ending year. And then if you're passing over BCAD, you've got to subtract one year. If an event happens in 1 BC and it ends in 1 AD, is that two years? One plus one equals two. And what if it happens in the first part of the year or the latter part of the year, and you're tracing it to an event that happens in the first part of the year or the latter part of the year? 
build a timeline sometime and bring it to me. And we'll see how your math works. Your math. This is Bible math. And these are the dates. And so some, and I left them there. See, I could have easily fixed it so it had been 70 for you. But then I would have cheated. Because that's not how easy the Bible is written. The Bible's not written in a table in a timeline like this. Enough on that. Jeroboam II. Let's just look at this thing and try to get familiar with it. The blue, the blue to the right has the two columns of major prophet and minor prophet and when they prophesied. Now Isaiah strings down through there. It looks like he lived as long as Methuselah. It's not quite that long. But remember, I have him stuck there in Isaiah because we don't know when he began in the reign of Isaiah, but since it says the reign of Isaiah, we start him at the first of, of, of Isaiah's reign. And it could have been much later in the reign of Isaiah because Isaiah was a king for 52 years. So keep that in mind. That's one of the rules of the timeline. But now Hosea, Joel, we, we had to get those men way up there because they prophesied, and it tells us, because they were prophesying to Israel, they prophesied while Jeroboam II was still alive. So see, we've got to get him way up there because we've got to get him up above Jeroboam dying. Now, Jeroboam II, why is he called Jeroboam II? You say, I've read my Bible a lot, and I've never seen Jeroboam II. Because Jeroboam I is Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was Solomon's competitor that took the ten tribes away from Solomon's and Rehoboam's reign. He was Rehoboam's enemy, and he was Solomon's adversary as well. That was Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He instituted calf, wor calf worship in Israel by setting up golden calves in Bethel and Dan. Jeroboam II is Jeroboam, the son of Joash. He comes much later than the other Jeroboam, so he's just identified that way. Now, if you look, Jeroboam II died in 712, and the next king, Zechariah, was 690. That is a 22-year interregnum, which means that there wasn't an official king reigning at that time. And this is what you end up with when you go through all the dates of the Bible. You find out that right here, Jeroboam died but we don't get Zechariah for another 12 years, and that's Israel. The Bible dates are corrected B.C. dates. Judah is the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Israel are the ten tribes. They're two different nations after Rehoboam. Two different nations. God loved Judah much more than he did Israel because Jesus Christ was going to come through Judah. And then you've got some Bible events like that earthquake, for those of you that read Amos 1.1, did it begin with two years before the earthquake? Well, we need to know about that earthquake. It is identified a couple other places in the Bible. Then we want to see some of those foreign kings like Tiglath-Pileser of the Assyrian Empire, then Shalmaneser. And in red, you have the end of Israel, other than my circling, and you have the end of Judah. But look at over there to the right. There you can see the prophets. Now Hosea runs all the way down with Isaiah because the first verse of Hosea and the first verse of Isaiah tell us that they were contemporaries under the same four kings of Judah. But Hosea's ministry was to Israel, and so he ended because there was no more Israel. But Isaiah kept on because Sennacherib came after the end of Israel. So Isaiah continues. You know, these kings right here that I'm circling are uh, wicked men of Israel. And if you read 2 Kings 15 through 20 and 2 Chronicles 26 through 32, you're going to run into those names. And they are wicked kings of Israel. They're not nearly as important as the other column. It's the kings of Judah that are most important because it's through them came the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. You know, there's King Hezekiah. And that's the fourth of the four kings that Isaiah right here prophesied during their reign, those four kings. Now you'll notice that in the far right column, I have five prophets jammed in that line. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. And that's because of the timing put in the first verse for those prophets and the classification by the Jewish scribes of how they listed them. Were they right about Malachi? Is he the last? Before John the Baptist? Are they right about Haggai and Zechariah? That they were after the Jews came back from Babylon, so they weren't warning, they were encouraging them to build? The yeah, they're right. The Jewish scribes were right. I don't, know, I don't know how they were right, 
since the prophets were Jewish, and they gave them their writings and commissioned them to keep those writings safe and keep them in order. So when you look at that top, you find out from the first verse, and there's a whole table that goes with this, but I'm not, I didn't give you the table yet because I didn't want you reading the table. I just want you looking at, I mean, reading the notes. I just want you looking at the table and thinking about it so that when you go to the book of Obadiah, when did Obadiah write? Well, he's positioned right there next to Amos in front of Micah and in front of Jonah. It's just that their ministries were different. Obadiah was blasting Edom, and so was Isaiah blasting Edom. We're going to run into chapters of Isaiah, like Isaiah 34, that is all about a blast against Edom. So there's Obadiah, way up there. Jonah was against Nineveh. You know, right here is the fall of Assyria Nineveh. But you know, Jonah had a message different than Nahum. What was Jonah's message? Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Unless you repent, they repented. God spared the city for 160 years, then leveled it. With the ministry of Nahum, now find Nahum, right in front of the fall of Assyria. Do you notice four waves of prophets? The first wave is before the end of Israel. And I'm going to draw a line right through here. First wave's above. Second wave are these right here that are before the end of Judah. Some overlap. Then there's this wave. Those three prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, were after the Jews came back from Babylon. Those three were after the Jews came back from Babylon. And just to know that, to know that, Haggai and Zechariah, we are told in the Bible very specifically, had the specific ministry of encouraging the regathered Jews to build. Because it was an intimidating prospect. What does your yard look like after seven weeks of neglect? What about 70 years? With a pile of rubble left by Nebuchadnezzar. It was, it was a tremendous task. And so those prophets came back to encourage them, especially those two right there, Haggai and Zechariah. When you, there's two ways. You go to the first verse, three ways. Three, you go to the first verse of each of these minor prophets to find out when they prophesied. Second, you look at their position in the Jewish scribal list. Third, you look at the context inside of what they wrote, the content of what they wrote to find out what other current events were going on so that you can time them, so that you can look at this. And I want you to get familiar with this as much as you want to get familiar with it so that you can understand the book of Isaiah. Because Isaiah is not limited to these years right here of those four kings because Isaiah is going to be telling you about the fall of Assyria, going to Babylon, coming from Babylon, the end of Judea, the temple and city being rebuilt, and I'm going to tell you in a, in a chapter, I'm going to say, look at these verses. These verses are telling you about the temple and city being rebuilt. And so you've got to understand that Isaiah is dealing with Isaiah, 727 up here, to 70 A.D., 800 years of God's dealing with His church. Not just the, the current events of the four kings that he prophesied under. Now here's Cyrus and Darius. Oh, Cyrus. Now what's in bold are what I consider the important person to look at. But on that particular line, I put Zerubbabel bold, from Babylon bold, and Cyrus bold. Because all three of them are so important. Zerubbabel was appointed the governor of the regathered Jews in Jerusalem. They came back as God prophesied in Jeremiah 25 after 70 years captivity. When the 70 years captivity ended, the 70 weeks began. All by Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, he mentions them both there. Now this Darius, who took the city of Babylon? Darius the Mede. His nephew was Cyrus. Uncle, uncle got the reign for two years. Darius the Mede. This is not Darius the Mede. You've got to be careful with the word Darius. It's more of a title than a name in the Bible. There's three of them. This is Darius the Persian. He is also Darius Hystaspes. He is also Artaxerxes. He is also Esther's Ahasuerus. 
He is a very important man. He belongs on this timeline. And he comes after Cyrus. Because Haggai and Zechariah, Nehemiah, Ezra did things under Darius Hystaspes, this particular Darius, who's also known. Artaxerxes is not a name. It's like Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not a name. Pharaoh's a title. Artaxerxes is Arda, great. Xerxes, Shaw, great Shaw. Alexander the Great, 331 B.C. You know, as soon as the Persian Empire was over and the Greek Empire began, we have, everybody has agreeable dates. Everybody has the same date. Uh, Clinton's, they're called Clinton's dates. They're all the same because Ptolemy's error is now in history. But when we're looking all the way back to the Babylonian Empire, Ptolemy's error is in the middle of our timeline, so we've got to get it out. But 331, everyone agrees on, that, that is the Battle of Gagamela, in which Alexander defeated Darius III, and the, Persian, the Greek Empire ruled the world. Right there, 331. Is Alexander in the Bible? Yeah, there's chapters dedicated to Alexander the Great, like Daniel chapter 8. Who's next? Who's that next guy? And what's the year beside him? 30 B.C. His name is Octavian. Augustus is not a name. It's a title. His name is Octavian. He beat Mark Antony and Cleopatra and their navy at the Battle of Actium in 31 and chased them across the Mediterranean and killed them and their seed. And he became Caesar Augustus. So that the Bible could say in the days of Caesar Augustus, a decree went forth that they should be taxed. And so it's in 30 B.C. You say, why is Jesus being born in 5 B.C.? B.C. sounds like before Christ he should be born at zero. That's because when these dates were picked in the Middle Ages, they made an error by five years. That's a whole other study outside the Bible. All we want is 483 years from Cyrus to Jesus' baptism in 26 A.D. In 30 A.D., Jesus was crucified. And if you get worked up about 5 plus 30 equals 35, I gave you four things you need to think about. Inclusive, exclusive, deducting a year for the switch over from B.C. to A.D., and what time of year did each event happen on both ends of the, of the event. I, and then Jerusalem was destroyed 40 years later. Do you like my fourth wave of prophets? I added them in. You can, you can just put down JRC. I just added those in because do, who has the best prophets? Right. We do. Look at our prophets. Did the angels prophesy? Amen. The angels came to Mary. The angels came to Joseph. The angels came to Elizabeth. The angels came to Zacharias. The angels burst open the field over the shepherds. The angels had many prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ. Tremendous prophecies. Did, was John the Baptist a beautiful... Behold the Lamb of God. The apostles of Jesus and the sure word of prophecy that we have. We could talk on this for a long, long time. I, I hope that you'll look at, think about it. As you read Kings and you read Chronicles and we go through Isaiah, I hope it will come to make sense. I hope that you will look over there and see Nahum. Nahum, second wave of a prophet. Notice when he prophesied, what was his prophecy about? A blast against the capital of Assyria. A blast against Nineveh. Look it. He prophesied in front of the fall of Assyria. How do I get you to love these prophets and read them? I used a heart. It was hard for me. How can I get you to love these prophets? There they are. They, sh they should intrigue you a little bit. It's the divine library. We get to go in, put our feet up beside the fire, and pull a volume off the shelf. Why not pull Obadiah off? Everybody, why don't you read Obadiah this afternoon? 21 verses. It's a small assignment. Obadiah, messenger of the Lord, messenger of Jehovah, and a blast against Edom. You say, what's that got to do with Isaiah? Because when we get to Isaiah 34, it's going to be a blast against Edom. And we're going to have two contemporary prophets doing the same thing. You don't want to know what I have left. 
Maybe I'll do it in the second service. The Divine Library. Forget the woodwork. Forget the overstuffed leather furniture. Forget the fire. Those are just little words I use to describe pleasure. When you open the Bible, is it like opening a treasure chest? If it is not like opening a treasure chest, you have a spiritual problem. There is no deficiency in the Bible. Its 66 volumes are wonderful. The world history on this timeline that is in those 17 books is fabulous stuff. These are the greatest empires in the world. God said they did his exact bidding. He would hiss to them. Bible terminology. He would hiss and get those nations. Hiss! Come on over here. Tear up this nation. Tear up that nation. And they would do his bidding. And if they got haughty about doing his bidding because they were beating other nations, he'd saw their legs off with another nation. And we're going to see that over and over again. We will not get but a few chapters into Isaiah when we're going to come to Isaiah chapter 13. What's the outline of Isaiah? First five chapters, warnings against Judah and Jerusalem. The next seven chapters from 6 to 12, the book of Emmanuel. You'll see it. It's going to be about the Messiah. Starting with chapter 13, the burden of Babylon. And it's going to be burden after burden upon foreign nations that God is going to bring the king of Assyria to beat on, then he's going to bring Nebuchadnezzar to beat on them. These are the movements of the world. You read the news, you you listen to Limbaugh and others that don't know anything about anything. This is everything about everything. This is what took place in the world and why. Because he had a special little very small remnant. If he hadn't kept the very small remnant, Judah would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. But he kept a very small remnant. We are the very small remnant right now. We are outside the pales of the Roman Catholic Church. We are not Protestants. We are not Reformers. We are Baptists. And God has preserved us. And he preserved them. He can preserve us. We want to look at the lessons. We want to see the warnings of the prophets. We want to see the judgments that came because they didn't obey those warnings of the prophets. We want to rejoice in God's sovereign control of the largest empires on earth where the the Lord God of heaven hath given me a charge. Did you like those words or not? Cyrus the Persian. There's no reason to think that he's saved, but he had a charge. There's no reason to think that Balaam's donkey was saved. He spoke the truth, but there's no reason to think that he was saved. The Lord God of heaven hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem. This is world history at its best. And this little timeline... You know, you may ask me questions about the timeline, but I hope that this is the fourth time I'm going to say it. When you think that you have found a one-year discrepancy, I want you to remember, there is inclusive dating that, in, that includes both start and end year. There is exclusive dating that excludes both start year and end year. When you pass over BCAD, you lose one year by definition. And then did the event happen in the first half of the year or the second half of the year? And there's two events to ask that about, the starting event and the ending event. These dates are Bible dates. What if we made a terrible mistake and Philip Morrow and Martin Anstey made a terrible mistake and and one of these is off by a year? My heart pumps peanut butter because it doesn't matter. As long as I have 70... And 70 times 7, I arrive at Jesus Christ and I keep the Bible intact. I'm happy and you should be happy. And I thank God for those two blue sections to the right where you can see where those ministries were and you can look at the events that they prophesied in front of and you can see how the minor prophets fit in that half the minor prophets are right up there with Isaiah. And that Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, prophets 7 through 9 of the 12, are early in the ministry of Jeremiah because they prophesied before Assyria fell. That's, that's precious. And not to think that it runs from Isaiah to Malachi in a straight timeline. It just runs down through Daniel and then starts over again with Hosea. And I hope that this might help you a little bit. I don't want you to be terrified, confused, intimidated by any part of your Bible. 
And if you want to start with something small, you know, I have preached to you, if we were to look at this, I've preached to you half of these books de in, in a detailed fashion. You know that I love Haggai, and you should. Malachi is wonderful. But as we back up through there, there's wonderful prophecies there. Maybe you could start with Obadiah. I, I have preached Obadiah to you in years past. It's only 21 verses. It's about Edom. Who's Edom? What are some of their cities? Basra, Ribla, Edom, the Edomites. They are the descendants of Esau. Esau, arch enemies since the two twins were enemies. And they continued to be enemies. And I gave you a psalm last night for those of you that looked up the psalms. Psalm 137 says that when we went off to Babylon, we sat down and remembered Jerusalem. And then we remembered that the Edomites came out and said, raise it, raise it. Encouraging Nebuchadnezzar to eliminate their enemy. And those people, those captives said in a godly spirit, Lord, remember Edom for what they did. And I want to tell you, God remembered Edom for what they did. And we are going to read about it in Isaiah, and you can read about it in Obadiah. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. This, is, this was more of a Bible study this morning. I regretted this today. I, I can't, this is ne next Sunday, it's the text of Isaiah. You'll wish that we were doing this instead of the text of Isaiah. Because the first five chapters of Isaiah are not pretty. The Lord's going to come after us. An ass knows his master's crib but you people don't seem to know who I am. Lord, help us. I love his word. I want you to love it. If I have said or done anything or made something too complicated or spent too long on any one point and have caused you to be discouraged about learning this, forgive me. I'll meet with you in private and we'll go over it again and I'll do better. I want you to love God's words. I want you to love a quarter of the Bible that is often neglected. I want you to see world history. It's his story. Jehovah reigns. Amen. Amen.